Acts chapter 26. We're going to be reading the entire chapter today, so follow along with us. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along the screen up, uh, on, uh, up above you, and we'll be reading from the English Standard Version today. Acts chapter 26, this is God's holy, inspired word. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa. I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of the hope, because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship day and night. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice sang to me in the Hebrew language. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying, both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense... Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus. But I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things and, I, and to him I speak boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God, not that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with him and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. 
And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if you had not appealed to Caesar. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, Lord, and Lord, thank you for every part of your word. Thank you, God, that every part of your word has been inspired to help us, to instruct us. God, sometimes you give us examples like this. God, sometimes you give direct teaching, but in every way, your word is meant to help us, to encourage us, to point us to you and to hope in you. God, I pray for each and every one here who is struggling with hope. God, each and every person here who might be facing trials or difficulties or challenges or just overwhelmed by the things of life or, or, or just weighed down, we're just busy, Lord. I, I pray that you would turn our direction in our hearts to you, to hope in you, to see the hope that we have in you, and to be refreshed and to be encouraged. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would um, anoint your word as it goes forth, that you would anoint me to preach your word, that you would give grace to everyone who hears, that we'd be able to hear from you. God, it's only by your grace that you open up our ears to hear and our eyes to see. So, Father, we pray that you would do that work by your Holy Spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Parade Magazine, a while back, it related the the story of a so-called self-made millionaire. He's a guy named Eugene Land, and how he once helped change the lives of a sixth-grade class in East Harlem. The school was notorious for having lack of funding, for having unmotivated teachers and unmotivated students. There was... One out of two dropped out by eighth grade. And so Eugene Land had been asked to speak to these to 61 sixth graders. It was back in 1981. And, and this underachieving school, and he, he, was, he was told, you know, we want you to help inspire them to continue on. You know, you pulled yourself up. You've done some great things. Could you inspire them to maybe just stay in school? And so he wrote a great speech up, or at least what he thought was a good speech. And he started giving the speech, and he realized nobody was listening. I mean, it's hard enough to have the attention of adults, much less 61 sixth graders. And so he realized in the middle of giving his speech that this wasn't going well. And so he set his notes aside. He scrapped them. And he said, you know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to speak from the heart and, and just tell them what I think. And so he, he told them what he thought. And he says, you know, I just essentially said, stay in school. And here's why. If you do, if you graduate, I'll, I'll help pay for your college tuition. And he meant it. And remarkably, this class of 61 sixth graders was the very first class in the school. I think, it, I can't remember what, what year it was, but by, by at least by 1990, some of them took a little longer to get there. But, but 90% of this class, where they had a 50% dropout rate, and after that, half didn't graduate anyway, but 90% of these sixth graders graduated, and it was because they had hope They had a promise. They had a promise that they would receive something, that they would have a place in college, that they could get there, that they would receive. And one of the students who believed Eugene and graduated and went on to college and got his tuition paid for, he said, I had something to look forward to, something waiting for me. It was a golden feeling. And then it was neat to read the L.A. Times follow-up story from, from 1990 of how they, they followed up on all of these students and, and 90% remembered and stayed in school because they had hope thank to his, thank, thanks to his promise. You know, hope can be a powerful thing, can it? The lack of hope can be just as powerful as well. You know, sometimes we can live hoping in things that were never meant to give us true hope. You know, sometimes our hope can be in work or maybe in the lack thereof. And we're just hoping for a job or the right job or the right occupation. Or maybe things never fell into place. And so you're just hoping that they one day will. And so your hope really for life's wrapped up in those things. Sometimes our hope can be wrapped up in our family, right? Our lives can easily become consumed with a challenge or maybe a difficulty or a hurdle or maybe there's some illness. And so our hope is just to get through, to overcome, to conquer what we're facing. You ever have those times where you're hoping in other things? Those aren't bad things to hope for. It's good to hope for, for being well, isn't it? It's good to hope that your family goes well. It's good to hope that you have a job. I hope that too, personally. <laughs> I'm grateful to God 
You know, our lives can become defined by hoping sometimes and even good social causes or social justice. Sometimes our, our hope, it can be defined by the, the, a personal illness or maybe the illness of a family member. Or maybe you have a child who's sick and all you can think of and where every day's hope is, is just could he get well? Could she get well? You know, some of you, you might find school in this final days to be all-consuming. And your hope is just that you can finish, that you'll pass your final exams. And somehow that could be an all-consuming hope. And for other social pressures, what people think about us, it can become what we live for. We can just hope to be accepted. Maybe some people are just hoping not to be made fun of, not to be mocked. It's easy to lose sight of true hope in life, isn't it? You know, all those things are good. It's good to hope in all those good things. They're not bad. However, none of those things is meant to be the primary hope that we have because if they are, our hopes will come crashing down. You see, nothing else is secure. Nothing else lasts. But there is a hope that's secure and that lasts. And we see that in the life of the Apostle Paul. Really, everything he has has been stripped away from him. You know, his plans have been derailed dramatically. He had planned, you know, he was hoping to go to, to Spain. He was hoping to go to Rome and Spain, but not this way. Um, he was hoping to, to be able to have many years to testify of the goodness of God. And he was hoping for fruitful ministry. And yet now his plans have been derailed and he's been over two years in prison. I can imagine that at times he was just hoping that, God, would you just get me out of here? And yet we don't see that what we see is that Paul is placing his hope ultimately in Jesus. And that's the sole reason. That's his defense. And that's his explanation for even why he's here. And all throughout his defense, it ends up being not as much a personal defense, although he does that. It's not as much a personal defense as it is a defense for the reason, for the hope that lies within him and that sustains him. He faced some serious challenges in his life as a Christian. He had ups and downs. He was beaten. He was bruised. He was, he was left for dead. He was abandoned by friends. He had serious conflict, relational conflict in his life. Um, he was trying to do good just two years prior to this. He went to the temple. was trying to sacrifice, trying to help people out, trying to help the church there. The church didn't rally around him. They didn't support him. They weren't there. All his friends abandoned him. And he is here now. But it's passages like Acts 26 that helped to reorient where our hope truly is and where the hope of every servant of God should be and, and truly is, if we remember it. So this morning, maybe you're aware of you, you've had some misplaced hopes. You've had some hopes that they haven't played out the way you thought they would. I want you to hear, I think, the main effect, the main idea that God would have for us and that, that all of us need to hear. It's that God's servant lives in the hope of the gospel. Our very lives are wrapped up. We, we live, we have life. In the hope of the gospel. And our lives are to be lived out that way in the hope of the gospel. And so we're going to see in these verses how God's servant, in this case Paul, how God's servant lives in the hope of the gospel. And that's meant to be hope for our souls as well. You know, maybe you're hoping for perfect marriage, perfect family, perfect job, perfect church. We're, we're never going to be or have any of those things. But we do have a perfect Savior who gives us a perfect hope. And through Paul, we're going to see what it looks like to live this life of hope. And in fact, his entire life had, be, had become defined by hope in the gospel. And if you just read through these verses, he talks about hope three times. He talks about faith. He talks about the light of the gospel. And what he's really talking about is his very hope for living. What his motivation was. As I mentioned earlier, he'd been left in prison for two years by Festus's predecessor, Felix. Felix had kept him there as a favor to the Jews. And now Festus, he's, he's brand new in his role as the governor of Judea. He doesn't really understand all the customs and, and practices of the Jews. And so he enlists the help of King Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa was um, the Jewish king who kind of worked for or in tandem with the Romans. And he was he oversaw the temple and the temple practices and he appointed the chief priests. And so Herod would have been very familiar. Agrippa would have been very familiar with the customs and practices of the Jews. That's why Paul later thanks me. He was being genuine. He was saying, I'm glad that somebody I'm appealing to understands what I'm talking about here because he knew he could have hope to say that this is nothing to do with Roman law. 
So Festus, though, he doesn't know what to do, so he asks for Agrippa's advice. And Agrippa, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, he was the grandson of King Herod the Great. He tried to kill Jesus. as a, his, his grandfather tried to kill Jesus as a child. He put to death all the children in, in Bethlehem and the surrounding area. And this Herod Agrippa, he was, he was considered by the Roman authorities as the expert on the law. And so he's hearing the case. And so that's why Agrippa says, okay, Paul, I'm going to let you talk now. I'm going to hear your case. And we're going to see really in this passage that God uses this, this multiple year diversion from the plans that Paul had to bring about his plans. Maybe, maybe you find yourself, by the way, it's a side note, but maybe you find yourself in, in, in a multiple year diversion too. Maybe you find yourself in a place where you feel like you've been diverted. And I want you to hear encouragement in these verses and in this passage that God can use what we look at as diversions from our, from the plan, really as part of his divine plan. And you remember in Matthew 10, 18, Jesus had, had told his disciples something. He had, he had prophesied to his disciples something. And, and it's, it's striking because this prophecy comes true directly in the case of Paul, as it has in other disciples as well. But he says in Matthew 10, 18, he says, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. This was all a part of God's plan. This was no derailment. And so now Paul is fulfilling Jesus' words and he was before the Roman governor and the Jewish king and he was bearing witness before them and the Gentiles who watched. And the first thing we're going to see us in this account is that Paul is on trial because of hope. You know, after the, the formalities, after the niceties are exchanged, um, he gets to the crux of the matter and he explains that why he's on trial, why he tells Agrippa, I'm on trial, it's because of hope. And I, and I love how he responds. He's, he gives this defense. He says, you know, King Agrippa, I, I'm, I'm grateful that I get to give this defense to you. And it, and it reminds me of, of the words from First Peter, as Apostle Peter wrote in in First Peter three fourteen, he says, "But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense." So the word there is apology. It's where we get the word apologetics. Is to make a defense. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And so we see here in Paul, he was a living example of this command, of this biblical principle to, to be prepared to make a defense. And so he gives a reason for the hope that he had. In this passage, look in verses 6 through 8, he sums up why he's here. So look down your Bibles and it says, And now I stand here on trial, and he explains why. He says, Because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain. I stand because of my hope in the promise. And in fact, all the twelve tribes of Israel, we stand in this hope, wanting to attain this hope. It says, as they earnestly worship day and night, night and day, for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O king. And he says, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Why am I standing on trial here before the Jews? Because this is the Jews supposed to be the Jews hope. Um, it's supposed to be what the Jews trust in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And I'm standing in defense of this hope. And that that's incredible, really. Ironically, Paul's being accused for believing the very hope the Jews should have hoped in. You know, at times we might face opposition or maybe our own former trials for the hope that we have in the promise of the resurrection. And we have as those who trust in and follow Jesus. You know, what maybe you're going through a difficulty, maybe you're going through a trial, maybe you're going through some kind of opposition today. You might be being mocked or maligned. You might you might lose your friends. We might lose our family or jobs because of our hope in Jesus. You know, is the, is the the culture around us changes, as the climate changes, as the lines become more sharp between those who trust in Jesus and those who do not in the, in the culture around us. Increasingly, our hope will be challenged if our hope's in Jesus. But no one can take away our hope because it's not been given to us by the culture. 
It's not been given to us by the government. It's not been given to us by people. Our hope has been given to us by the God of all who has secured our hope through his own son. And so Paul is testifying that the hope he has and the hope that we have, it's, it's not a new and fleeting hope. It's, it's based on a promise that was, that was given thousands of years previous. It's based on all the promises of God that have become true in Christ Jesus that God gave to Abraham and through his people through countless generations. And we can look back, just like Paul looked back and say, we don't have some newfangled hope. We've not created this on our own. This is a hope that God has given to us that is secure, that is firm, that has come to pass in Jesus and that we know he will keep us until the end. And we can see in Paul that despite the trials that he faced, God's servant lives in the hope of the gospel. And then in verses 8 to 17, Paul goes on to describe how he was once an opponent and now a witness of hope. And so the second, second idea that we're going to see is that God, God's servant lives in hope. But all of us, not just Paul, were once opponents, but now witnesses of hope. The Apostle Paul himself, he's the ultimate illustration, isn't he? You know, just going looking for an illustration. What's a good illustration of somebody being an opponent of the gospel? I'm like, <laughs> um, Paul. He's probably the best illustration in the Bible of being a direct opponent. We don't need an outside illustration here. Paul already is that illustration. And he sets it up for us. Just, I live my life as a Pharisee. Oh, I was, I was a strict Pharisee. I kept all the law. I devoted my life to stamping out the followers of Jesus of Nazareth. Think about the most hostile terrorist, the, the most hostile follower of Islam who is killing Christians. Think about that. Paul was that day's equivalent. Even though he, he was meant to hope in the promise that God had given to the Jews, subtly his promise really had, his hope had become in attaining Righteousness. He devoted his life to stamping out the followers of Jesus. He persecuted them. He, he pursued them, as he said, even in foreign cities and synagogues. And he voted, he says, in approval for their death. What more of an example would we want of somebody who was an opponent? Can you think of anybody, anybody in your life who you can think of who's an opponent to the gospel? Anybody can you think of? You think, they're beyond hope. You know, they're, they're far too gone. They're the biggest opponent. They'll never become a Christian. Whoever you, you have in your mind, maybe that's some political figure. Maybe it's your friend. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's somebody who hates you. Maybe it's a neighbor and you think there's just no way. Well, we, we can have faith and confidence that God is able to change opponents now to be witnesses of hope. You know, at times we're surprised by growing anti-Christian sentiment, but we really shouldn't be, should we? After all, from the very beginning, people have opposed Jesus and his followers. Not only did they oppose Jesus directly, Paul opposed Jesus and his followers. And ever since then, people have been opposing Jesus' followers. And yet we see that the church has continued to grow and to thrive because Jesus is the one who gives us hope. It says that he's the one who builds his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And why, would, why do we expect differently when we see that people are opposing and why would we think that those same opposers cannot become witnesses to the hope too? Paul says he was relentless in, in pursuit of punishing the followers of Jesus. He said, he, I, I tried to trap them. I tried to, the connotation there is I tried to trick them into blaspheming God. Maybe he tried to trick them into saying Jesus isn't really God. Whatever it is, the implication is it really didn't work. He tried to, he tried to make them blaspheme. But he didn't succeed. He was motivated by this, by a rage. You ever encounter anybody like that? Maybe once you were hostile to God and to Jesus. You know, it says all of us, really, whether we knew it or not, were once hostile and alienated from God. We all once were enemies of God. We all were once an opponent. Don't, don't kid yourself. God didn't get a good deal when he got you. You were once an opponent of God, and, and now if you place your faith in him, you have been made a witness of hope. And Paul says, I, I was motivated by rage, a furious rage. I persecuted him wherever I could, even outside of Israel. He was a definition of a religious fanatic, right? A radical against the cause of Christ. And he went all, he says, I went all the way to Damascus and I was on the way to Damascus and then something happened. He says, I was abruptly stopped by this, this light. It was the noonday. I was stopped by, the, stopped by this light that was brighter than the sun and we all fell down. 
We knew this was not an earthly phenomenon. This was God. This was the heavens opening up, shining down. And it was so bright, we fell down. And then he says, I heard this voice. And this voice said, Saul, Saul. And by the way, whenever you hear Saul, Saul coming from the heavens, you know, if you hear your name being called like that from the heavens with a bright light, you might pay attention. You know, when I, still to this day, if my mom, you know, she's in her 70s, if she's, if she's angry and she says, Matthew, Matthew, I'm like, oh man, I'm in trouble. And I can imagine a voice from heaven in a, you know, bright light. And he's stopped by a higher authority than any chief priest. He's stopped by the highest priest. He's, he's given an appointment that's greater than any appointment that he's been given by the earthly priests. And Jesus stopped Paul and he, he let him know that Paul was, or Saul then, was persecuting him. And he says, why are you kicking against the goads? And uh, my, my kids were reading that this, this week, yesterday. Noah was reading. He said, what's a goad? I'm like, that's a good question. Uh, a goad, it, it was, it was a, a long stick. It was sometimes made out of iron. It was always had a hard metal tip on it. And a goad was used to poke the oxen if they got out of the furrows. Oxen could be stubborn animals. And if they didn't listen to the, the person who was in charge of them and they didn't, they tried to get off the, out of the yoke that they were in and the path that, that their, their master wanted them on, they would poke them with this long goad and it would hurt. Sometimes it would draw a little blood because oxen are a little thick skinned and, and, and it was, you knew you had a stubborn oxen if they would kick against these goads and they would get hurt even worse. And so there became a proverb that was, you know, for somebody who was doing something really stupid, going against obvious circumstances and obvious direction, divine direction, somebody must have been really stupid if they were a person like that was kicking against the goats. And so Jesus says to Paul, essentially, he says, Saul, why are you being such a dumb animal? You're going against my will and the direction that I have for you, and it's hard. It's hard to go against God. To kick against the goads. And so Jesus is making it clear that no, I'm in control. I'm the master. You're going to be on my path. You're not going to go your own way. No wonder Paul wrote of the sovereignty and the election and choosing of God so much. This wasn't Paul seeking. This wasn't Paul looking. This was Paul going his own way. And Jesus saying, no, you're not doing that. Here's where you're going to go. And did you notice in this verse when Paul's recounting, he, he didn't say that Jesus asked for his permission. He says, Paul, Saul, I, I really like to use you if you would let me. You, you don't see that. You see, you see Jesus saying very directly, Saul, for this reason, I've appointed you. I've appointed you. I, I've, I've given you a position. I've appointed you're going to be my servant. You're going to be my witness. No questions asked. He's not asking for confirmation. He's telling him, he's putting him back on the path, just like an ox is put on the path by his master. The master's not asking, asking the ox, um, hey, do, do you want to get back on the path? No, he kicks him with the goat and says, look, here's where you're going. Now, in Saul's case, he was, he was disciplined and, and God was saying, this is going to be pointless if you try to go against me. And he, and he was letting Paul know that you thought I was dead, but I'm alive. And Saul, the Christian hope is, is alive. In the, in the appearance of Jesus, he's saying, you're persecuting me when you persecute my followers. And, and just as a side note, <clears throat> that should give assurance to all of us who are undergoing some form of difficulty or persecution that when we are experiencing that, Jesus also experiences that he is familiar with that he has sympathy he has mercy he feels when you are in pain he's not distant and jesus demonstrates his authority over paul and he gives paul a new appointment a greater commission than what he's already been given and jesus is appointing him to be a servant and a witness and i was just thinking is, is there somebody in your life maybe there's somebody in your life that you think is beyond hope Who's an opponent. Or maybe you once were an opponent and you think, you know, I don't know if I can ever really be forgiven. There's somebody maybe that you, you think, I'll, I'll never share the good news of, of Jesus and the hope of the gospel with because I, they're just far too hostile. Maybe somebody you think is far too gone. Well, look at the example we have in Paul. He was once an opponent of hope. Now he's a witness to the hope of the risen Jesus. 
You know, just like everybody who's here who places their trust, if you've placed your trust, your faith, your hope in Jesus for life, we all were once enemies of God, but now we've been given hope that's secure, that keeps us. A hope that's, that points us to our task. That Jesus, if, if you've placed your faith in Him, you can be sure that He's the one who's called you. He's the one who's directed you. He's the one who's put you on the path and made you His servant, and He'll enable you to be His witness. And since God transformed this persecutor Saul to the Apostle Paul, and maybe more personally, since God's transformed us from enemies to his children, it should give us hope that he can transform any opponent to a witness for the hope that he's given us. And we live in this hope that God's given us, that he can make anybody hope in him. And, and then it tells us, and in, in Paul, as he is giving his defense, he tells really what his hope is, and, and it's in forgiveness and a place among God's people. And that's the third way that we're going to see God's servant living in hope is that Paul testified that forgiveness and a place among God's people are received in hope. That's, that's what he's received. That's what we received. That's the message that he preached. That forgiveness and a place among God's people are what we receive in hope. Or another word for that is in faith. And so Paul used the word faith there. They're interchangeable. Forgiveness and a place among God's people are received in hope. And this is really the direct words that, that Jesus told Paul that why he was sending them. He look, at, look in verse 18 of your Bibles, please. He says, I'm sending you, he says, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And here's the wonderful promise that we have. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified or set apart or made holy by faith, by hope in me. Paul's commission, it was now to, to open the eyes of the Jews and Gentiles so they might turn from darkness to light to receive forgiveness and a place. And he was appointed so that people might turn from the power of Satan to, to the power of God. And that's the message that we've been given. That's a transformative, powerful message. A message that opens eyes, that delivers people from darkness to light, that, that breathes forgiveness when it's believed in, that, that gives a place when we trust in this message. There's two primary elements of this, this, this gift of the gospel of Jesus. And, and I want us to hear this for ourselves too. The, the two primary elements that he shares are the forgiveness of sins and receiving a place among the people of God, among those who have been sanctified, set apart, made holy to God. This, this word for forgiveness that Luke records, it's, it's got some beautiful meaning to it. This is, I was doing some research and, and looking this word up is a little bit different than the normal Root word and, and, and this word forgiveness it kind of has this meaning of a, of a release from bondage or imprisonment and maybe you've placed your hope in Jesus and yet you still believe you still feel as if you are in bondage you're imprisoned to your sins or you can't break free from it and the hope that we've received already and that you need to know that we've received and 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 this is for those who yet have yet to place their hope in Jesus there is a hope that's received for all who place their faith in Jesus. And this forgiveness, this release from bondage, this release from imprisonment to sin. And this forgiveness, it's, it includes the complete pardoning of sins. We sang about that this morning. It's the kind of forgiveness that, that lets sins go as if they'd never been committed. Think of every sin you've ever committed, just for a moment. You know, don't be afraid to do that, by the way. Don't be afraid when the devil tempts you to remind you of your sin. You can say, yes, that was me, and that's all forgiven. You can boldly declare, I've done all those things. I was that person, but I'm forgiven. And it's as if I've never committed them because they've all been placed on Jesus, and I receive forgiveness now. That's how you do battle with the thoughts of the enemy when he accuses you. The accuser of the brothers comes and he assaults you and assaults your hope. He tells you how bad you really are. You can say, yes, I was that bad, but I am no longer. I've received forgiveness completely um, as if they've never been Committed. And this, this forgiveness, it entails the, the full remission 
the full cancellation of the debt we owe, the complete removal of all the charges and penalties. Isn't that good news? Isn't that a great hope? Complete forgiveness is what we receive as we hope in Jesus and turn to Him and repent. Think about that for a moment. Imagine, imagine some of the worst people you can think of in history. Maybe, maybe for you, Stalin or a Hitler or a Idi Amin or a Pol Pot or a Mao Zedong or a Saddam Hussein or Osama bin Laden or the list can go on and on, right? Imagine if they go to the international court at The Hague and they have a hearing and the judge and the the panel there, they allow them to go free completely and they were fully exonerated of all the charges against them and let go as if they'd never done any wrong, never again could any wrongs that they'd done ever be brought up again, never could they be tried, never could they be accused, and never could they have any penalties. That would be scandalous, wouldn't it? We should think that way. I mean, it should be scandalous. It's not just. It's not right. Punishment needs to be made. It's not right that people go free. And just so, it's not right that we go free. It's scandalous. And that's the kind of forgiveness that we receive. That's the kind of hope that we receive in forgiveness in the gospel message. You know, think for a moment of every evil thought, every bad thing we've said, every sin we've committed, both in the act of committing and then just not doing what we should have done. I, I can't even I can't even imagine how many books I would fill. Not just with the things I've done that I can remember, but all the things I've failed that I'm not even aware of. All the times when we haven't kept God's standards of loving Him with all our heart, mind, and soul. Every time we've not loved our neighbors like we love ourselves already. All of those things. And he says we receive this kind of complete release from the prison of our sins. Our debt's been completely paid, our charges, our penalties that God had against us have been removed. And that's why we preach this message of hope in the promise of Jesus. That's why Paul was preaching this, we lived for, that's what he was in jail for. You know, sometimes when life bugs you down, we talk about needing to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We need to preach this to ourselves every day. It should never get old. Because we still continue to fail. We still continue to not live up to the standard we've been called to. We still fail. We still sin. And yet we still have an everlasting hope that we've received. And then not only that, he says, not only do we have complete total forgiveness of sins, rule of debt, we can have a place among God's people. A seat in God's family at the table. An inheritance that we receive in those who've, who've been set apart and made holy by faith in Jesus, those who've been now made a part of God's family, we now have a place among them so that we can say with confidence, yes, we rightly belong as God's children. That seems wrong to say, right? For a moment, you're like, I don't rightly belong. Yes, you do because of Jesus. We actually rightly belong in God's family because he bought that right. Not because we earned it, but because he bought the right. We have a right to say, yes, we are children of God and we have a place because he's given us that place. It's like an orphan sitting, waiting for years only to be adopted and given a home and a father who loves them perfectly. We now, we are no longer orphans. We're no longer homeless. We have a place. We have a family. We have an inheritance and we've received that. That's our hope. That's the hope that Paul preached about. That's what he was telling King Agrippa. It means we have fellowship, a restored relationship with God Himself. We have a, we have a place in His people. And, and when Paul received this commission, his life was forever changed. And that's what he's telling King Agrippa. I now have hope and I'm preaching this message of forgiveness and, and a place. And then we see a fourth example on Paul. We see what Paul lived for in response to the hope of the gospel. Paul was living to preach resurrection hope. We can see that verses 19 through 23. And then again at verse 29, he was no longer living, hoping his ability to keep Judaism pure. He was now hoping in the culmination of all the hope of the Jews and all of mankind and in the resurrected Jesus. Is that where your hope is today? Is your hope in your career? Is your hope in a marriage? Is your hope in a person? Is your hope in something else? 
Those things are fleeting. And so he explains to King Agrippa, he says, I didn't disobey this vision from heaven. And, and, and Agrippa would have gotten that. See, to, to have a heavenly vision and, and a voice from God, a God, God speaking to you as a Jew, to disobey that would have been to disobey the direct voice of God himself. And so he says, of course, King Agrippa, I didn't disobey this vision from heaven. Instead, I declared it. And I started that in Damascus and I went to Judea and Jerusalem and I went everywhere I could go. And I preached this message everywhere. And he sums up his defense and he reiterates, I've not been arrested for causing civil unrest. I've been arrested for this hope, for preaching the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm not making anything up, he's telling King Agrippa. I, didn't, I wasn't creating a new message. I'm just preaching what the Jews already should have known. What you should know, King Agrippa? This is really fulfillment of, of Moses. All the prophets of Moses, he says. All the prophets of Moses. I'm not, I'm not saying anything new. All the prophets, all the Old Testament. All, all the prophecies, all of Moses, they all point to this one hope, this one resurrection hope in Jesus. And Paul said he did all of this by the enabling power of God. Maybe you're feeling weak and you're thinking, I can't do this, you know. See, Paul's example, he said, I did all this. I'm here right now. I've received help outside of myself from God to stand in this very hope. If you want to know what it looks like to glorify God in your life, you know, the, the Westminster Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God, to enjoy him. Sometimes that kind of foggy for me. What does, it, what does it really mean to glorify God? What does that, what does that look like? You ever get, you ever think, okay, I want to glorify God. What, what, what does that mean? Well, it, it means living for him, living in hope, living, trusting in him, living for sharing the hope that you have within you, preaching the hope, telling about it, making your life all of that glorify, glorifies God. How does it glorify God? It glorifies his grace, his mercy. It exalts him practically. That's what it means to, to glorify God. That's what Paul did. He lived to preach this resurrection hope. And in his obedience, it was in response to the hope that God had given him. And then his whole life was oriented to sharing and testifying to the hope of God and everything he did, whether it meant mending tents or sitting in jail or preaching, giving testify, testifying to the king. How about you and I? What, what, do you, what are you living for? Is it, can you see that you're hoping in God? Are you living that way? Are you thinking that way? Is, is daily, are you placing your hope? You know, I'm, I'm weak. I don't know about you. I, I, I forget every day. I need to remind myself. I need to preach to myself first and foremost. And then I need to think, you know, God, would you enable me, not out of condemnation, but because I have a hope to, Lord, somehow, feebly, weakly, but enabled by you, share a reason for this hope. If we've really been affected by the hope that we have, I think if we really understand the hope that we have, we're going to want to live for it in everything we do. I hope that inspire. I hope Paul is inspiring you. I hope this passage is inspiring you to see that we have a hope and it's worth giving our lives for. It's, it's worth telling everyone about. That's what evangelism is all about. That's why we, that's why we have a mission as a church, by the way, to, to be disciples of Jesus who are growing and making disciples. It's because we have hope. And we want to share that. And if you really get your hope, you're going to want to do it. You're going to want to share. But remember, through the example of Paul, we see this fifth result of living for the hope of the gospel. Um, Paul, there's one other result that you've got to be aware of, okay? Paul was thought crazy for the hope. They, they thought Paul was crazy for hope. And, and maybe he was a little crazy for hope, right? And maybe, maybe some of us need to be crazy for hope, right? And as he ends his defense in verse 23, we see that Paul testifies. He says that the Christ might suffer, and this is his message, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he proclaimed light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And then at this point, as soon as Paul mentions the resurrection from the dead, and that's what his hope is in, and the, and the, and the light that Christ give, gives to all who place their faith in him, Festus responds to that, and it would have been offensive. They see, the message of the gospel is offensive. It was foolishness, especially to the Romans, who did not believe in a resurrection from the dead. They didn't believe that you can be brought back to life. Even if they believed in an eternal soul, no one would have believed, no, no self-respecting Roman ruler would have believed that you can be brought back from the dead that just seems ridiculous right i've never seen it and so he blurts out paul you're out of your mind you know all your great learning your letters all the studying you've done man you like hold yourself up in such a way that like you have gone loco you're nuts something's wrong with you 
I know you're smart, but man, you lost touch with reality. Now, sometimes we meet people like that, you know. We've lost touch with reality to say so much, but Paul is not gone crazy. He wasn't intimidated. He answers Festus respectfully, directly. He says, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I, I'm speaking true and rational words. And he gives the basis for his statement. The king Agrippa knew that the prophets and Moses testified to Christ. And, and then, then he says really boldly. You know, even though Festus thought he was nuts, he didn't stop sharing. Look in verse 26. It says, For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. You know, this wasn't done privately, some hidden way somewhere. There were so many witnesses. This was done out in the open. All the things Jesus said and did, his resurrection, his crucifixion, they were, they were done out in the open. Everybody in Israel could not deny Jesus, even though they, they didn't believe in him. And so he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? A bit of a tantalizing question because he knew that King Agrippa, he was actually known for being a pious man who believed in the prophets of Moses. And he says, I know you believe. The implication is if you really believe Moses and the prophets, you're going to believe this resurrection hope. And I think he must have been a little uncomfortable. He doesn't really answer Paul directly. I don't know whether or not King Agrippa ever responded. If he didn't, I bet he regrets his response. But he replies to Paul with this rhetorical question. Maybe he meant to save a little face in front of Festus. And so look in verse 28. The Griffin says to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And then they all get up and they leave. You know, they're, they're done. They're done. Maybe at times people will think you're nuts, right? You ever had that experience? I have. People think I'm crazy at times when I tell them about I hope in Jesus. And yeah, and I, I place my faith in, in God and that he sent his son, born of a virgin, and they're like, yeah, right. And that he lived a perfect life in my place and that he died in my place and he's been resurrected. And sometimes people might think that you're nuts. But don't let this stop you from being bold to declare, to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. Paul, Paul didn't back down. He says, yeah, can you agree with that's true? Yes, yes. Whether in a short time or a long time, it's just what I'd like. I, in fact, I want everybody who hears me today to become a Christian like I am, be sold out to stand for the hope of the promise of Jesus only I don't want them to be in chains like I am. You know, a little bit of a hint here. Grippa, I I'm not so fond of these things. I wonder what we would say if we're speaking to a local judge or our senator, our U.S. senator, if they said we were crazy for believing in Jesus. What would you say? How would you respond? I wonder what we would say if the president said we were nuts for believing in Jesus. Maybe we have an audience with him. We share the gospel and he says, you're nuts. You're insane. Maybe more subtly, maybe even more difficultly. I, I wonder what we say for a family member or a classmate or a coworker that we had to live with day in and out. I wonder what they would say if we, if they said we were, what we would say if they, they said we were crazy. Well, unfortunately, they didn't respond when they heard Paul. They left. And then in the end, they said, you know, Paul hasn't said anything wrong here. And Agrippa agreed. There's no offense here. There's no, there's no public offense against Paul, he's not a threat. He's not disobeying the law. He's not even breaking the laws of the Jews. And he could go free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. And yet God was using this so that he could use Paul to set him up, to prepare him, so that Paul could give testimony to Caesar. It was all part of Paul's God's plan to get, to get Paul to testify so that the Jewish king and eventually Caesar might hear a message of forgiveness and adoption. You know, Paul, in the end, he's left here trusting in God for the results. And that's what we're left with, too. We're, 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 not, we're not to make people believe. We're to give reason for the hope. We're called to testify boldly. We're called to place our own hope, our own faith, to receive forgiveness, to receive that place, the sanctification, and to place all our faith and trust in there. And just like Paul, to trust God for the results, even if people think we're insane, that's okay. You see, whose opinion matters most is God's, and he's already said I love you completely. I accept you completely. You'll never be torn away from me, no matter what man does to you. And ultimately, God's servants, we're living in the hope of the gospel that can never be taken away. And we close here. I want to close with the encouragement from the Apostle Peter. First Peter 1, 3-9. It's a verse we often refer to in this church. And 
And we want to keep referring to it. And I want to keep it before you. In 1 Peter 1, 3-9, it says, According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's what Paul's been talking about this whole time. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith, through hope for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the outcome of your hope, the salvation of your souls. Hope is a very, very powerful thing. When our hope's misplaced, it can be just as powerful. If our hope's in physical wellness, if our hope's in a job or a person, if our hope's in being liked or respected, or if our hope's in things going well or relief from circumstances, that can have a devastating effect. But you can see through the life of Paul the effect that a simple gospel hope has to transform not only his life, but the lives of, of so many around us, and, and really our lives too. So let's together reorient our hope, place our, our hope and our faith in Jesus afresh. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us this account, this picture of, of Paul's commitment to hope in you, and God, that you were the one who sustained him. God, I, play, I pray that you would give each and every one of us here a renewed hope in you. For all those who don't know you, I pray that they would com- confess their sins and they would confess that they need you, that they would turn away from their sins and that they would trust in you, Jesus, for the forgiveness of sins. And I pray, God, that all of us would reappropriate and receive the forgiveness that you've already won for us. And God, I pray as well that we would remember and our hope would be in the fact that we have a place among your people as your children. God, give hope. And Lord, let us be messengers of hope. God, let us declare boldly because we have a secure hope, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.